Everybody likes criticism, right? Don't we? Don't we all like criticism? Every once in a while I get criticized, hard as it may be able to be believed. Um, a friend of mine was uh, talking about the uh, couple of messages ago when I was talking about prayer and, and present prayer. And I triggered one of his pet peeves because he said, you know what, I always hear these preachers, you know, talking about some great ideal, but they never tell you how to get there. I mean, how do you get there? I mean, here's this great ideal. It sounds all wonderful when you walk out the door, but how do you get there? Now, I had to push back on him a little bit because I said, everything that the effect is about is about establishing the contemplative practice in all of us. We're talking about that constantly. We're talking about how you do exactly, step by step. And coming out of being a re- uh, starting as a recovery ministry, I mean, people in recovery need concrete steps, just the next indicated step. They can't deal with the abstractions and, and all of the esoteric knowledge. It's got to be concrete. And so we married that together with the way that we teach here and the way that we interpret Scripture through a first-century Jesus, all very practical. But then I happened to think about it. You know, I probably didn't say any of that in that particular message, and so I get that. And so in isolation, here is the ideal. Here is where we would like to end up, but how do we get there? And so I think it's valid, something to to take a look at. So I'm going to try to do that better. I'm going to try to remember at least to give us some ways of being able to get where we're going. In this series on presence, which is what it's ended up to be, I didn't intend that when I started, but it's been become a series on presence. How do we get to presence was, was one of the foundations. And first we looked at presence as the foundation. And I was saying that if presence isn't exactly the same thing as love, then it's so close to love, presence and love, as to be indistinguishable. But this is love understood, I think, as Jesus was teaching it. Love understood as not a feeling or a behavior, but an actual identification with the beloved. To feel so connected with the beloved that the line is blurred where we end and they begin. That everything that we do for ourselves is literally for them and everything we do for them is literally for us. When you're entering into that kind of connection that Jesus calls love, how is that different from presence? But at least that kind of love is not possible without establishing presence. And so we talked about how presence is a foundation. Presence is at least 90% of the spiritual journey. Presence is the sine qua non. The <laughs> without this, there is nothing. You know, it is the essential piece to everything that follows. And so, presence is a foundation for love, understood as identification. But how do you get to presence? And so we worked backwards from presence and said, how you get to presence is through prayer. But now we have to understand prayer differently, not as a stream of thoughts or a stream of words or a stream of petitions. You know, asking for things. But prayer understood as a practice of presence, both offline and online. Offline, where we carve out that quiet time, that quiet space that Jesus talked about. Retreat into your closet. Retreat into your prayer space, both internally and externally. We need to find that eddy in the current. We need to find that place where we can just be. And then we can step away from all the noise in our heads and all the things that keep us distracted and keep us away. Paul talked about continuous prayer. That's the online part. Continuous prayer cannot mean a steady stream of thoughts or words because we would be useless and pointless in trying to do what we do during the day. 
but as a steady stream of awareness, as a steady stream of presence, mindfulness, being completely planted where we are, immersed in what we're doing, connected to who we're with, understanding that unseen God infuses all of this and makes it possible every single moment, that's continuous prayer that Paul was talking about. So prayer as the practice of presence, both offline, learning the techniques of how to step away from that constant noise machine in our minds, and then the online mindfulness and continual prayer of awareness, that takes us to presence. The practice of presence that is prayer takes us to presence, which is either the same as or leads directly to love. This is the kind of the spectrum, kind of the throughput that we've been trying to establish in the, uh, in the last few weeks. And so in other words, presence is the effect of prayer. But now, what is the effect of presence? Well, we identified love, understood as identification. But now, what's the effect of love? See, there's a continuum here. And Jesus gives us all these related concepts And they all really belong to the same thing, if you really think about it. From prayer as practice of presence to presence to love. And from love, love absolutely is going to generate humility. Now, humility properly understood as just the proper understanding of our relationship with each other, with all other, and with God. Not that we're any better, not that we're any worse, but we are right there connected, on the level with. Really, that's the best description of humility. Not that we see ourselves as under anybody. We are all the same. But once we have achieved that sense of oneness with, that humility with, what flows out of that naturally is going to be service. If we are infused with presence, with the love, with the humility, then naturally there's going to be something that flows out to every person that we encounter. And this is something that Jesus pounds on. Love as identification with the other is the same as humility, embracing true relationship, all equal. And the effect of humility is service, actually caring for others as much as we care for ourselves. Jesus is always talking about this. I didn't do an actual count But I would wager that Jesus talks about service as much or more than he does any other topic. I've often heard that money is a big topic for Jesus. Well, services are going to be right up there. He talks about service all the time. And why? Why would he focus on service so much? Simply because it's the right thing to do? Because God approves of us serving each other? Is it only because there's going to be a reward for service? either in this life or the next? Is that, is that why the, the focus is there? Because it's just part of God's law, and so we need to be obedient, we need to be dutiful? You see, service can be done for all sorts of reasons. Because it's an obligation, because it's a duty, because it's a, a right thing to do, or because we're looking for some sort of reward. But there's only one reason for service that Jesus recognizes as being emblematic of being on his way, being in kingdom, And that's service that flows directly from the humility, that flows directly from love, that flows directly from presence, that flows directly from prayer. This is what Jesus sees as proof 
as reality that his way has actually been engaged, that kingdom has been engaged. And kingdom understood as the quality of life that we can have right here and right now when we are connected with each other in this presence. Living in the person's heart is flowing. This is what Jesus talks about as service. His brother James said that faith without works is dead. Famous saying, right? And so we can say, okay, then we're supposed to do all of these works in order to prove that we have faith, and that's the putting the cart before the horse. Because that's not what James is talking about. What he is talking about is that if you really do have faith, faith understood as the action, the engagement, the risking of ourselves, as if something were already true, has to result in works. Works are going to be a part of that flow of action. And what Jesus is saying, the same thing is happening here. That presence and love without service is equally dead. But only this sense of service that is flowing out of the humility that defines love and presence with each other. Jesus had a saying, very famous saying, where he said, if you're impressed to go one mile, go two. (laughs) Now, that comes from the reality of first century Judea, where the Roman army was empowered to be able to commandeer you, your vehicle, your horse, your cart, whatever it is that you had for one space, for one distance that we will call a mile in our language. Just that one space. So they could meet you on the road. They could commandeer you to go this one mile. After that, they would need to release you, and then they would commandeer the next person. And that's the way the armies could travel along the Roman roads, by just grabbing whatever they needed to do in the streets. But you were only obligated to go one mile. What Jesus is saying, that first mile, that mile of obligation, that means really nothing at all. It's a tax. Think of it as a tax. It's just what they could impress you to do. But you go that first mile of obligation, and then you volunteer a second mile. And not only to your friend or someone you like, but to the hated Romans, the oppressors, the ones with their boot on the neck of your country, the ones sucking out all the wealth of your country, all the wealth of your family, to volunteer to go a second mile, to serve them in that way. See, to Jesus, everything is about the second mile, not the first mile. If our service is first mile service, then he would say you have your reward in full, whatever it is, whatever the transaction allowed. The second mile, everything happens in the second mile. If your service has any sense of duty, of obligation, of reward, then there's no kingdom present. And there's no transformation in a person's heart. But when your service is as automatic as your breathing, when your service is as pleasurable as a really good meal with great food, great (laughs) ambiance, then you can start to say the kingdom is becoming your mailing address. It's about becoming who we are more than what we do. We are the service. We are people who automatically serve and serve with no need for recognition. Nothing. Take a look at what Jesus says at Matthew 6, starting at verse 3. But when you give to the poor, he says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Now he's contrasting that with the Pharisees. He made a big show of what they gave and what they did, sounding the trumpet, you know, putting a wad of coins into the coffers in the temple that bang and made a big sound. And so everybody looked, ooh, look what they gave. He said, no, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just give without any sense of recognition. It doesn't matter how much. It matters the heart with which you give it. Now, here we are as humans. We can make a rule out of anything. Have you noticed that? The most benign guidance, we can turn it into a rule. I had a friend years ago. If he did something and you tried to say thank you, you know, he'd turn around and say, don't steal my blessing. Don't steal my blessing, you know, because as soon as you thanked him and you gave him recognition, now suddenly as if it wasn't his gift anymore. We can take it into a superstitious place like that. We can make it a rule, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. If you get thanked, you graciously say, you're welcome. (laughs) It's that simple. That doesn't steal your blessing. But if your consciousness of your act of service is such that it takes you out of the presence of the moment, then it's also taking you out of love in the moment. If your service is focused on the reward that you're going to get at some time in the future by this organization or that person or your standing is going to be raised or in the hereafter, whatever it happens to be, if your sense of service is because you feel obligated and you're grinding it out and you've got that basic resentment still as you're doing the service, you're not present and you're not in love. Paul puts it perfectly. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, dealing with both those issues we just talked about. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there is a great alternate translation of that last line, which is, Deal with your relationships with the same mindset as Christ. I like that better. In all your relationships, deal with people with the same mindset as Christ dealt with everyone and is dealing with you. Service flows out of humility, and it is its own reward. That connection that you feel with another person, when everything else is out of your mind, just the connection perfectly self-contained in that moment of connection. No strings attached. No other moment is necessary. No other special ingredient needs to be added. The moment itself becomes exactly what it needs to be. No other thought, no other reason, but the person's needs right in front of you as your utmost concern. And whatever action flows out of that is the service. That's it. When we have the same mindset as Jesus, then service feels like it's flowing and not being pushed. And there's a real difference to that. Flowing and not pushed. Paul continues in Galatians 5 on the same topic, starting at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But though we but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is really big on freedom. He's really big on the freedom from this 
overarching sense of duty and, and obedience that the law instills in all of us. <coughs> but to understand that in Jesus now, we have the freedom. Remember what Augustine said, love God and do as you please? Recipe for disaster in the wrong hands, right? But if you love God first, then what you please is going to always look like law, always look like service. This is what Paul is talking about. You've been given this tremendous freedom. But don't then turn it and continue to use it in selfish ways. But then look at each other. A relationship with another person where mutually the two see the other's needs as paramount, see the other two needs as greater than their own, are willing to delay their own gratification to fulfill the needs of the other, there is nothing more beautiful than that. There is nothing more fulfilling than that. And in a relationship like that, nobody's needs are really delayed. Nobody's what, pleasure, gratification is delayed. Because there is a mutually uh, shared purpose and meaning that occurs when that kind of relationship is established. How does Jesus put it at Matthew 23? He says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, if you read Matthew 23, this is a chapter-long tirade against the, the Pharisees. And Jesus minces no words in denouncing them because he's trying to get the people to understand. He's trying to get the Pharisees to understand what they are doing is so heinous in terms of the service they're supposed to be giving to the people as their leaders, as their doctors of the law. But everything they did was calculated to gather more power to gather more control over the people and to exalt themselves into higher and higher positions. And so Jesus says, look, for all of you, whoever is greatest needs to be the servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. And here Jesus is more and more talking about this paradox, this paradox that is so present in life. He's trying to take our worldview, their worldview, as well as our worldview 2,000 years later, not that much has changed, and turn it upside down. Or really better, turn it inside out. Where we think our fulfillment is going to come from the outside. And so all these things that we calculate to do within our small self minds to try to create those outcomes that we think are going to be our meaning and purpose and our fulfillment, it's really about the inside. It's going to work from the inside out. Real leaders are going to be servants for the people that they are leading. And the greater the leader, the deeper the sense of service, the deeper the humility. And we hear people say that all the time when they get some great award. Oh, this humbles me. You know, I've always wondered, what does that really mean to them? You know, does it really humble them or is it just something to say? But in the very real sense of that, that's exactly what it should do. The more someone is recognized as a leader in a field over people, the greater their sense of humility should be. The greater the sense that they have to remind themselves, I am no different than these people, even though they're holding me up head and shoulders above themselves, even putting me on a pedestal. Everything is exactly the same. You know, what was it, uh, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor? I think it was him. It was one of those guys. Paid someone, a servant, to follow behind him when he was walking through adoring crowds and saying, you're going to die just like everybody else. 
you know, to remind him to keep that sense of humility, to keep that sense of grounding. Yes, the greater the leader, the greater and deeper the sense of service and humility should be. And Jesus pounds this point over and over again. Take a look at Luke 22, starting at verse 25. He says to all of his friends, and this is right in the middle of the Last Supper, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over the people, them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is really not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, who would have the least authority, right? And the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. See what is happening here? And this is a response to a quarrel among the apostles, unbelievably, at the Last Supper, at the very end of Jesus' ministry. How many years have they been traveling with him? And they're quarreling at the table about who is the greatest and who is going to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. They're quarreling at the table. I mean, you just got to say, really? You guys still don't get it? After everything that Jesus has said, after everything that he's done, after everything that he showed you in terms of who he is, you're quarreling over something like this? Jesus was their leader, but he acted as their servant, never lording it over them, even though they called him Lord, teaching them, but always with the idea of empowering them from underneath, holding them up like small children. And then to push that point home as if he hadn't made it strong enough already. What does he do? He stands up at the table. He strips down to his loincloth, wraps a towel around his waist, and goes from person to person washing their feet. And I know we've talked about this before, but just to try to impress upon you once again the abject nature of that act, Jewish slaves couldn't even be impressed to wash feet. Only foreign slaves could be impressed to do that in that culture. It was, just, it was considered such a disgusting and low act. You know, in, in, uh, today, even in Middle East cultures, the bottom of the feet are considered defiled. Even if you sit with your, your legs crossed at the ankle, to point the sole of your shoe at another person is an absolute insult in that culture. The feet are considered dirty, filthy. You don't touch them. You don't look at them. Remember when we, they pulled down um, Saddam Hussein's statue how many years ago, and they all came up and they're beating it with their shoes? That was the ultimate insult. In that culture, the feet are dirty, and they are dirty, especially when you're walking around on dirt streets and sandals, right? To wash the feet was abject. And so the disciples are shocked. Peter refuses at first. Jesus is making this point to them. I am your leader, and yet look what I am doing for you. Does that start to get it across to you? Is this shocking enough for you to start to understand? And then, after he does that and get back, gets back to his seat, then at John 13, he says this. When he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said, Do you know what I have done to you. Just to make sure, 
Are you comprehending it? Are you getting it now? Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did for you. What are you doing quarreling about, quarreling about who is greatest? Do you know what it means to be greatest? To be greatest means that you wash each other's feet. Over and over and over, Jesus is trying to get this point across. From the inside out, from the bottom up, the teacher, the Lord, acts as the most despised slave and servant. Mind-blowing. In our culture, it may be hard to get across what is really here for the people who first experienced this and read this and heard it through oral tradition. Marion and I were watching a, a TV series that uh, is set in 17th, 18th century England, and the, the, the class division is so, so much a part of everyday experience in this show. There is one who is born of noble birth who marries the scullery maid, falls in love with her and marries her. And of course, that's a big scandal. And she has to endure all of these insults and snide remarks throughout. One character just basically says to a doctor who is caring for the, uh, the commoners, you know, why do you bother? I mean, if, if they die, at least it'll keep their numbers down. I mean, they're saying things that you would be ashamed to even think. And they're saying it out loud, you know. That's 1,700 years after this. How much has changed? The feeling that we have sometimes for others who we feel no connection with, that we feel are less than we are, that are exhibiting traits that we despise, all of those people fall into the category of the enemy. We don't remember, we don't necessarily have a sense of how deep those chasms exist. For us to then serve those people that we have the harshest feelings for is kind of unthinkable. But that's exactly where Jesus is going with all of this. It's one thing for him to wash the feet of his dearest friends and his followers. But what does he say at Matthew 5.44? I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And prayer understood as Jesus understands prayer, as a practice of presence, means to become present to those who persecute you, those who are giving you the hardest time. Can you still be present to them? Can you still see them as fellow human beings? who deserve everything that you deserve, and not from somebody else, but from you? How is this possible? And this tradition doesn't start with Jesus. Take a look at Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. See, this is the most difficult and the most mind-blowing part of service that even the enemy, even the despised one, these lower classes are seen as worthy of our service, of our presence, of our love. Our humility demands that they are equal to us in every way as human beings. If not in action, 
just in existence, just in being who they are. To see them as broken human beings, as Jesus said from the cross, they don't know what they're doing. They are still worthy of Jesus' sacrifice, and they are worthy of our service. Once we've entered Jesus' mindset, though, once we're thinking the way Jesus thinks, looking at the world the way Jesus looks at the world, when we can take equal pleasure in serving enemies as much as serving friends, then we can know that the kingdom has taken hold in our hearts. Then we can know that we have entered along Jesus' way, and we are starting to know something about the way the Father loves us. How in the world can we begin to comprehend how we, these lowly creatures, and we are all hardest on ourselves, aren't we? How can we hope to believe that the creator of heaven and earth loves us in a way that is all-encompassing until we can love someone that we feel no affinity for and feel has violated our code of ethics, has violated our standards, whatever they happen to be. When we can feel our service going to that person, then we start to understand how God's love can flow to us. And when that happens, the trust, the blessed assurance can set in, and the fear begins to dissipate in our lives, which allows more and more of the love to be able to flow. I was talking to a father just last week, and what he wanted to talk about was his son, trying to parent his son. His son is very difficult, and uh, so he's been trying to parent him, but as he told me the way that he was disciplining and the way that he was parenting, I was impressed. It's, you know, I he seemed like he was doing absolutely everything right. It was so measured. He was staying calm. You know, I'm hearing it from his side of the story. Maybe if I heard the kid's side, it would be a little different. But, you know, kids are all going to see things from a different perspective, aren't they? But he was doing what he thought he needed to do to try to get the boy into shape, moving along with the, with the same ethics and, and values that his, the family had and that his faith has. And what he was distressed about is that he rarely ever heard his son tell him he loved him. He got, I hate you a few times, but he was wondering, is he being too hard? Is he doing the wrong thing? Why isn't he hearing I love you from his son? And, And he was wondering if he was wrecking the relationship. And we talked about it for a while. And since everything that I heard him say that he was doing sounded so right on to me, so measured, a father is the head of the household. The mother is the head of the household. The father and mother are parents to the children, which means they are servants to the family. The father needs to be the servant to everyone in that household. He is his son's servant. What is it that his son needs right now that he could provide? And we talked about that. He needs the discipline. He needs the correction. He needs to know that his father loves him, but maybe he can't comprehend right now that the discipline is coming from a place of love. And it will be years later until he finally makes that connection. But for the servant to stop serving because he is not getting the recognition, not getting the reward that he's looking for, would be a dereliction of duty. Can the father continue to serve his son in the best way that he knows how, even without that reward, without that recognition or acknowledgement? See, that's the hard thing. It's so hard for all of us to do. 
And it crops up in all of these different ways, some as simple as disciplining your child. How do we continue to do this service? We need to start to understand, of course, that service is not a good deed that we do. An obligation or a transaction for some sort of reward, a transaction for God's acceptability of us, acceptance of us. Because as soon as we start looking at it that way, it is a transaction, and that's all it is. And Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. But when it becomes our greatest pleasure that we can't wait to do this, then everything begins to change. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. Your service is going to flow from the inside out, starting with your practice of prayer and presence. I think I probably told you this before, but if you could prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist, absolutely empirically in some scientific way that is yet to be discovered that God does not exist, I wouldn't change a thing that I'm doing right now. I wouldn't change a bit about the way that I'm living. Because this is the best that I've ever felt. This is the most connected I've ever felt. This is the most meaning and purpose that I've ever felt in life. I don't live in service because God will reward me either in this life or the next. But because I've managed to find my deeper self, a truer nature, as I have experienced God's true nature. And that has changed me from the inside out. But if you take away the sense of reward, service is its own reward. The humility and the love and the presence, the connection. There is no greater way to have a moment on earth for a human being than to be immersed in all of that. Now, it came from God, and so it's connected to God, but I'm trying to make a point here. So you could probably say, in a way, then, service is kind of an enlightened self-interest. <laughs> We're serving because it feels good to serve. Truth of the matter is, human beings are all pleasure-seeking missiles, aren't we? We're all looking for pleasure and trying to avoid pain. And so is service then just becoming another way to do that? That could be, but service isn't always going to feel good, is it? Especially if we're serving the enemy. It can still feel like purpose. It can still feel like the thing we know to do because it just flows out of us. But we don't just do it in order to feel good. We can't help feeling good when we are connected to another human being. And what transacts, transacts because of that. Service is not pursued for its own sake. In fact, service, the way Jesus understands it, is really not pursued at all. It just flows from every moment of presence that we experience. Service is going to come to us. Opportunities for service are going to come to us. We don't need to go find them. In fact, I suppose if you're looking for service all over the place, especially if you're looking far afield, and it's really especially if you're looking for spectacular ways in which to serve, it may be a sign that you're missing the point of the whole thing. I had a friend who was retired who volunteered at a local hospital. He had the time. It was something to do. He loved it. Showed up every day when he showed up and loved the interaction that he had. 
Now, that's a more formal kind of service. That's great. And if your service takes you halfway around the world to serve in some foreign country, great. But we need to be aware of what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. What are the motives behind it? Is our service flowing out of a natural interaction with people? Or is it something that we're seeing as a kind of transaction? When we're really present, when we're really aware, we're going to see service opportunities everywhere, in every moment. They're not going to be spectacular, necessarily. And they're not going to be anything that necessarily is going to get us noticed or recognized or rewarded. It's going to be as simply as simple as a father continuing the hard work of training his son with possibly no I love you in sight for months or years. It may be as simple as you letting a car into your lane. Someone's got the blinker on for about 10 minutes coming down the street and you finally just let them in. It can be something as simple as that. It could be changing your schedule, your busy schedule, in order to fit in coffee with a friend. It may be just calling people who come to mind and checking with them. Have you ever done that? Just someone comes to mind and you call them, and it's like, I can't believe that you called right now. You know, I, I, and it's like the, the supernatural connections seem to be happening, and you're just acting on an impulse. Can we become people who do that? who see an opportunity, a thought comes to mind, and we act on it, and we take ourselves there. No one is going to pin a medal on you for these kinds of things, but when it's in your blood, no one needs to pin a medal on you. Kingdom and Jesus' way are not possible without service. Love without service is dead. Service is not possible without the humility Humility is not possible without presence and love. And presence and love is not possible without the present prayer that makes it real in our lives. How do we do it? Start with prayer. Prayer understood as a practicing of presence. The beautiful thing in everything that I've told you, if you just remember one thing that you do, is to start with the practice of presence. In whatever way you do that, with your prayer, and everything will flow from that. And how do you know when you are really on Jesus' way? Because your service will be second nature, and it will be as natural as breathing. You won't think about it, but you'll be in it, and it will be beautiful in your life. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to think that you are our servant. It's almost blasphemous to say it out loud. But you have told us over and over again that's exactly who that you are. You exactly are a humble and unassuming God who serves us in any way possible. Help us to see that in you. Help us to experience that in you. Help us to begin to value that in you. Accept that trait in you as our God and to value it in ourselves so that we will take the first steps toward the presence, the love, the humility, and the service that defines us as your followers. 
We want to be your people in every way and every shape and form that that takes. Help us to see you as you are so we can see ourselves as we are. Thank you for serving us, Lord. Thank you for your love and attention. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.